Welcome to the intersection of theater and even more theater. You have achieved stage grok. Theater podcast coming to you from the Geographic Center of the American Theater. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Today I talk with orchestrator, composer, and music director Charlie Rosen about his Broadway big band, his 8-bit band, and also his work on the new musical Be More Chill. All right, well, thanks for talking to me today. Um, uh, I've been doing a bunch of interviews with people working on Be More Chill, so I'm really psyched I get to talk to you too. Cool. Um, and the main reason I'm psyched about it is I've seen so many videos of you and your band on YouTube. And the first oh, cool. thing I want to do is talk about the band. So tell us a little yeah. bit about the band. Well, first I have to ask, which band are you referring to? <laughs> oh, it's the uh, uh, the uh, big band. The, the Broadway big band? Or the eight band? Yeah, yeah, the Broadway big band, yes. Okay, great. Yes, the Broadway big band. I think that started out because um, I grew up in a household uh, with other musicians who I've always loved large ensemble music in general. So my mom is an orchestra classical musician, my dad's a jazz musician, and uh, I just grew up going to orchestra rehearsals and playing in large jazz orchestras and big band era music was always playing around. And that's something I've always loved to do. And I've always, I think, been fascinated with orchestration and arranging growing up. And uh, it sort of grew out of that. You know, I was playing in, in jazz band in high school and I started getting into theater late in high school and I moved to New York when I was in college and started working on that and still playing jazz. And, you know, I just look, kind of looked around and, at the, the industry that I was in and I am so used to these jazz clubs that all have their own sort of like house big band, you know, the Birdland big band, yeah. Village Vanguard big band. And it's just sort of like, this is this wealth of material and music and this scene, like, why isn't there like the Broadway big band, you know, like the big band for Broadway. You know? Right. <laughs> it, seems, it seems sort of like a natural fit and I was surprised that you know, that there wasn't a house Broadway, you know, so I just kind of started doing it, uh, did a bunch of arrangements and started doing it at the beach room and then eventually when 54 Below opened, they reached out to me about being their sort of like in-house big band and doing a thing there and so now it's been six years and, you know, ideally I would do them once every like two or three months, but with schedules, sometimes we go six months, sometimes we go a month, so, uh, but yeah, it's been great. It's been fun. So, so, I I have orchestrated one song ever in my mm-hmm. life, and it was really hard, and uh, it it blows my mind. People like you who orchestrate a whole show, but but also I listen to the band, and I think, man, that is such rich, complicated stuff going on. And and maybe this is a silly question, but what what is it that's so exciting about? that particular sound, that that big band jazz sound coupled with Broadway, there's something really different about that. Right, right. Well, the thing that's, what's great about that band is my sort of like lab is it gives me an opportunity to pull from all of the other styles of music and writing that I might and and, and into Broadway. And, you know, obviously 
when people think of big band music, like they think of swing stuff traditionally, but the big band as an as a unit, as an ensemble, as an instrumentation has obviously grown very far beyond that in yeah. recent years and now like draws influence from like every musical style. And the big band itself is just a vehicle for expressing in that style. And I think what makes it so exciting is the fact that it is truly just like a large collection of loud instruments, but <laughs> like, you know, and, but the thing is about working with a large ensemble that's so great is it gives you as an arranger the opportunity to really like have the, the full color palette that you need to yeah. create a, a painting that has a really detailed backdrop, foreground, middle ground, uh, with having enough color options that you can do that all that still serve the vocal, which is in the foreground of your painting. Whereas when you don't have that many colors, um, you can't do that. Like you don't have enough texture variation to paint right. a detailed picture, you know? And right. so the thing that I think makes it exciting particularly is that that, that collection of instruments is equivalent to having uh, a color palette at your disposal with a bunch of really bright colors. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, and also, I guess, as you were talking, I was thinking about this. Part of it is those loud instruments, that's yeah. the same palette for traditional Broadway, Golden Age overtures. Right. That's right? very true. It is. The only thing we're missing is the strings, and so we have to right. compensate for that in interesting ways, which just make it even more intense because we only have horns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, that was that is, like, the standard sound that you associate with sort of, like, you know, the American songbook, like American music, you know? Yeah. That and it's what grown I, so much over the years. My favorite piece is the Candide Overture. Oh, yeah. Because it's so not the Candide Overture, but right, it really right, is. Right, 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 like, right. Really that, that one, that one, I, that overture has always been so bombastic and over the top anyway, and it's, you yeah. know, that kind of writing that it fits really well with big band. But also, like, that's a perfect example of taking, like, um, a sort of over-the-top classical approach and, like, filtering it through what the contemporary equivalent of that energy is genre-wise, but, like, now using this, like, that drum groove, you know, and this full sound and, like, what is the contemporary rhythm section and contemporary jazz band equivalent of the same intention, but just, like, filtered through this, this slightly different lens, more modern do you, lens. Do you, do you think of it as a as a translation, as a transformation? It's a little of both. It's yeah. a little of a translation. It's it's sort of like, um, it's like, an updating. When yeah, and updating and also like me seeing, seeing an intention and, and understanding like dramaturgically the path of an arrangement and orchestration yeah. and finding ways to like expand upon that and comment on it um, with a different setting but achieving the same like contour and effect, especially when I'm working on these overtures, you know, the shapes of the overtures I think are really sacred. Like I never, the forms of them, I always keep the same, but it truly is just like, um, you know, I, I teach like a clinic about how to arrange. And one thing I do is I had somebody draw a line drawing of me. And then this, this graphic artist took this line drawing and she does a variation of it. That's like, Dadaism, like pointillism, you know, uh, all the like Looney Tunes style, like all these various, it's the same line drawing, but it's like all right. these various, which is like the equivalent to the orchestration, you know? So right. some are bold and some are brash, but like the contours of the arrangements are the same and the intention. Um, it's just changing the colors and how they make you feel in the context. You can't remove it from like 
the time and the place and because all genres have a, you have a decade that they're associated with and a color yeah. and those colors give yeah. you the setting and so it's like honoring the, the tradition of the intention of what the the dramaturgy of the arrangement does but just bringing it into colors that are more timely so i don't think that makes sense i feel a little bit like it's it's exciting to talk about so <laughs> I, yeah it, i'm not rambling People who are listening to this, you got to check out the videos on YouTube because it's just so much fun. Well, so yeah. when I asked you about this, you said, which band? How many bands do you have? Okay, so, yeah, right. I have this Broadway big band, but also this summer I started another project called the 8th Big Band, which is uh, an even larger, anywhere between 30 to 65 piece, like wow. contemporary yeah, big band and pops orchestra that plays all video game music. Oh, that's awesome. So that's a full big band. And at its biggest, it's also a 25-piece string section, harp, choir, like the whole thing. Oh, my God. And, and, yeah. and can we see these on YouTube? Oh, absolutely. We have nice. a whole album out on Spotify. We also have nice. animated, like, in-studio videos on YouTube. There's a video of George Salazar playing through the first two worlds of Super Mario Bros. live accompanied by a 65-piece orchestra. <laughs> like this, it, this is the thing. This is a very, very prevalent thing on YouTube right now that I, I think everyone should check out. They hate the okay, this, is a, this is a wonderful thing, i got to say. Oh, yeah. You definitely should check it out. Okay. Well, so the main reason I want to talk to you is you've orchestrated Be More Chill. And before we talk about Be More Chill specifically, I want to talk about your process. I want to talk about how to orchestrate a Broadway show. <laughs> totally. And so I want to start with the very beginning. Um, I guess I guess it's going to change from project to project, but but when did you come in on Be More Chill? When did you first become part of the team? Right. Well, Be More Chill, luckily, uh, I was in pretty much at the ground floor, which isn't necessarily true for all orchestrators. Sometimes, right. you know, they just bring you in uh, to strictly orchestrate. But for Be yeah. More Chill, because me and Joe Iconis have, like, a very long working history, you know, we, I was brought in for that very first workshop that I music directed. Uh, I made the PDs, you know, setting the ground for the groundwork for what I would do later in the process right. and it worked straight to show. And also, luckily, we knew that it was going to be produced so we could look ahead and not all shows are like that. Uh, oh, right, because often people writing a show, they have no idea it will get produced. This one was commissioned. Right. This one was commissioned. So we knew, like, okay, this is going to be produced eventually, so I'm going to do this workshop, lay the groundwork, and think about right. even ahead of time what these – probably, you know, five to seven musicians are going to play. We ended up with six. Right. Um, so at that, for Be More Chill, I was in at the ground floor, the workshop level. Joe sent me the songs that he had written. I turned them into piano vocals. And this is really what I'm talking about now is more of the music supervisor stuff, which is what I'm, right. you know, I'm doing now is right. overseeing the creation of the whole musical sound. So yeah, made the BDs, did the workshop, and then um, yeah, we had a discussion between me and Jane, the producers, about how many musicians we could have. We were given six. Me and Joe have a conversation about what's the sound of the show? What are the touchstones of the show that, like, what genres do we draw from that give it, like, the energy it needs uh, within the limitations of the instruments and what is the time period and the feel? And so we decided on things like um, 80s sci-fi as one of the touchstones for the squid. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the touchstone for, like, Jeremy and the general school is sort of this, like, you know, rock pops, the pop punk, things like that is one touchstone. And then like another one is sort of like, uh, um, I'm trying to think of some, you know, some other rock genres, some Oingo Boingo was a big touchstone that we, that we talked about a lot. Um, and then like for some of the more like, uh, play rehearsal was just sort of this like general school time thing, uh, guy would be kind of be into a kind of more like indie rock thing, just a couple of things. So then knowing that, then you think like, okay, so what, what in my six instruments, how do I make that work? 
And it was at that stage that I came up with the wild idea that the Reed player would also play Keys 2. And because of all the sci-fi stuff, we knew from the beginning that we wanted Theremin. We felt very strongly that <laughs> yeah. the benefit from having Theremin. And then it was like, well, shit. We, we can't we can't really afford to have a dedicated theremin player. But luckily, my friend Danny Janakucci, who plays trumpet in the show, was willing and ready and willing to learn the theremin, so it became a trumpet theremin book. That's hilarious. Uh, and now, because we only had six and I'm a crazy person, I really was going to miss having that sort of low-range brass. Uh, yeah. So I was given on another project an instrument called a flugelbone, which is like a flugel-based trumpet that uses a trombone mouthpiece, super weird, like sort of marching instrument that's in school. Wow. Yeah, and Danny had some trombone experience, some valve trombone. And so I gave him this flugelbone, and so sometimes in the show, you hear like Barry and flugelbone, uh, or flugelbone and tenor. And yeah, so like, like in I Love Play Rehearsal, there's these sort of like French horn lines that come in and out, and it's this flugelbone, because we don't need trumpet on that song. So luckily, I'm able to put him to use as a baritone range instrument pretending to be a French horn. So this flugelbone actually has sort of become, I've used it on like six shows already. It's kind of my secret weapon. Nice. Yeah, a lot of the times you only get two horns in these off-Broadway and regional things. And if you can find a trumpet player who's game to play flugelbone, it kind of makes all the difference. I have never heard of that. That's yeah, it's it definitely a weird one. Nobody knows what it is. It's definitely, it's a, it's my secret sauce on, my, you know, <laughs> on six or seven keys off-Broadway things. Well, so um, on a totally practical level, what does Joe hand you? Right. So there's definitely a spectrum of materials, depending on the composer, that you get, right. ranging from total freedom to color by numbers. Like some, yeah. some composers are also orchestrated. So Joe gives me, like, he records a demo of it, of him playing the piano and singing. Right. And then we listen to it, and we talk about, like, you know, we'll, we'll listen to some other, he'll send, like, some references. He'll be like, I was kind of thinking he would be this kind of vibe and send me a couple songs right. that he kind of was inspired by. Uh, and then we just talk about it. And then, um, you know, we either I or somebody makes a PV out of it, a piano part. Um, and that's, that's it. So Joe's mostly like a sending a demo kind of guy and we're right. out and outsourcing the transcription. You know, some, some composers prefer to make their own piano parts and some composers uh, make a piano part and tell you, yeah, in this measure, I, I need French horn. You know, I want, I want to right. do this, you know, it's like right. really color by numbers. But Joe is a pretty trusting hands off guy. He hands it off to me and, he lets me do whatever I'm going to do, and then if he wants to change anything at band rehearsal, we change it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about, you know, every note in the piano score is already the orchestration, essentially, but also right. songwriters who give you a lead sheet without even chord symbols over it. Right, right, exactly. You know? And yeah, Joe's what, somewhere what, in the middle, for sure. What, what's the ideal for you? What, you know, as an orchestrator, what, what would be your favorite way to get the score? My favorite way is somewhere in the middle, but you know, what's great about Joe is that um, he spent so many years like as a, uh, as an accompanist and an MD like at NYU that his piano playing already has, he has a ton of vocabulary as a piano player. Right. So when, when he plays a tune or is writing a score and making demos for it, he already has in his fingers this, all the sort of like groove information and chord change information right. and hits and feel that. You listen to, and like as an orchestrator, I can very clearly hear the potential of what it, he is expecting sound-wise, right. Right. which is yeah. actually more freeing than the opposite. So my preference is like a kind of like this, honestly, a right down the middle approach where it's like the the demo has all the information you need in the playing, uh, but it's not so overbearing that you don't have any room to expand upon it. 
And it's not so minimal that you are sort of, and I use this metaphor a lot, putting on a blindfold and throwing darts at the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Some composers really do feel like that. Yeah. Uh, So so how many musicians do you get for Broadway? Broadway we have seven. One more. (laughs) It's like this great luxury for you. (laughs) Yeah, you know what's funny about that is, um, we we had six off Broadway and to really make it work. Well, there's a, kind of a funny story about that is we got six in Two River, and we did the best we could. We made it work. You know, we needed some more sound, but we just didn't get it. And then we recorded this cast album. And I not we all thought, oh, the show's done. We made this cast yeah. album. Great, we're licensing it. I sent right. the cast album home to my home studio, and I overdubbed horn three, keyboard four. You know. Guitar two, guitar three, extra woodwinds, like the whole thing. Vocal, more vocoder, more theremin, more synth sound. And I produced it. You know, I really went in on it. And then when it got popular, we, we got back to off Broadway, we were like, shit. <laughs> now what do we do? We have to recreate this. So we ended up employing a lot of Ableton, which is a software that interfaces tracks and live musicians really well. So all the extra synth, like synth sounds, all the extra drum machines I put in, all the guitar two and guitar three got put into Ableton and played back live in tandem with the band to give it that. So it sounded like the album. Great. That's, that's all well and good, except technically you're not, you're not supposed to do that. Like that is the synth stuff is one thing in the drum machine, but like having guitar and horn and tracks is technically taking somebody's job. Right. That's not cool. And so when we transferred to Broadway, we were like, well, we can't, no, we, no one's going to stand for this. Like, the union's yeah. not going to stand for it. Right. Nor should they. I mean, we don't want to take this job. So we went through the Ableton and decided that the bulk of the Ableton live instruments, like the synth drums and the, synth, the synthesizers could stay because they're sequenced elements that are you know, synthetic, fine. We took out all the guitar and we added a guitar two book. Um, and that's all we added because Joe was really happy with the sound of the show. And he yeah. didn't want it to change. It sounded great. It worked. People loved it. It doesn't need to sound any bigger. It's a rock show. You know, it doesn't need a big orchestra, and that's definitely true. So we didn't want to add too much, but also we had to remove the live instruments from the backing tracks and make chairs out of those. So we so, weren't still going to be job. So in a perfect world, how big would the mm-hmm. band be? In my perfect world, I literally just need – I would want one more. All I would want is a third one. And then <laughs> I'd be always one down. more. Just one more. <laughs> because when you got, you know, your reed players on Barry, that means that your trumpet player is all alone, you know. Right. Uh, so if I just had that, I could, if I had that one more horn, just like trombone is all the only other thing I would ask for, but alas, it's okay. All right. Well, so I want to ask another technical question. You sure. sit down to orchestrate. You've got, yep. are you we're doing this on a computer? Yeah. I'm we're yeah. working a finale. And so like, what's, what's your process? What, what do you put down first? What are the obvious things? What are the less right. obvious things? Right. So when you're, I've heard stories of orchestrators that go through the entire piece and maybe do one staff at a time. I don't know if I really understand that because I think of orchestrating as texture shifts that occur over time. So you look at your, you look at a phrase, right? You look at the the first phrase of your verse. You're like, okay, my verse is, is two eight bar phrases. How, what is going to be the the texture from each of these instruments that's going to make the verse? So that when I move on to the chorus, it builds and changes in that section. Right. What's going to right. change about the texture in that? So you really like, in your head, based on your wealth of vocabulary as an orchestrator that you've learned from listening to as many things as you can and dissecting it instrument by instrument, 
and remembering what those instruments do to create that sound. You look at you look at your thing, you think, okay, based on the genre, based on the style, based on the energy of the vocals, based on the lyric, what is this what is the overall texture of this section need to be? Okay, cool. Got it. So it's gonna be like this on the drums, probably this on the bass. Let me look at the vocal line. Okay, there's the holes. I'll put some horn hits there. And then you just then you fill it in. So you come up with the big idea for the section first. Then however you want to start is up to you. Then it's like, okay, I guess I'll start with the drums or I'll start with the keyboard part and or I'll hit through the horn hits first. But the important thing is you come up with the big texture idea for the section first. And then you're talking about holes in the melody. Talk about oh, yeah. the back and forth between vocal and band. Totally. Well, again, when I, when I teach orchestrating clinics, a metaphor that I use a lot is thinking about your orchestration uh, as happening in three simultaneous layers. And this is not something I made up. This is something that uh, the great orchestrator Don Sebesky talks about in his book, which really stuck with me. There's a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary layer of focus that the human ear has, right? And so in your primary layer is your vocal lines, your melody, dialogue, anything that's the foreground of your painting. It's the subject, you know, it's the, it's the whoever is standing there. Um, things that occupy that layer also include like melody instruments, horn hits, a soloist, you know, all those things have the same job. Secondary layer is the things that provide the harmonic, like the harmony and the chord changes and that sort of abstract concept of that. So you have your piano and your guitar and background strings, horn lines, like things that don't move, but provide a bed of harmony with which layer one uh, exists. And layer three are things that give you your, your genre, your groove, your rhythm, your sense of time, your field. It's, and the bass notes, right? So it's bass and drums, percussion, whatever that may be. Anyway, in layer one, and novice orchestrators often make this mistake, is there's too much activity in each of the layers at any given time. And so it gets too busy and it doesn't have change and contour over time. So when I talk about holes in the melody, that's because in layer one, in order to not distract, you, you have to, only one thing can be happening in that layer at any given time. So if it's not the vocals, if you use the vocal line, you can look for spaces where there's not somebody singing and you can interject your horns into that sort of accent in between as opposed to talking over. It's like two people talking over each other instead right. of having a conversation. Right. I, I love thinking about it that way. That's really cool. Yeah. It makes it, it, makes it pretty clear, right? I, I actually just gave a clinic at a, there's a big video game music uh, festival or a convention called MAGFest and uh they just had me in to talk about how to arrange video game music, which is the same as how to arrange any music. But this, yeah. I did this this exact metaphor, but I used all video game music examples to talk about how to <laughs> nice. how to like yeah, in different ways in each literally in each layer, different texture ideas using instruments that you can use to evolve and change your arrangement over time to give a contour and shape. That's really interesting. So so how long does it take you to sit down and orchestrate one number in a show? It depends, but I would say like if it's a if it's a uh, if it's like a three or four minute song and it's like a six or seven piece band, and, you know, and it's like if I go in with a pretty clear idea, it also depends like how familiar you are with it. You know, if I sit right, in rehearsal right. every day and listen to it every day, I'm super familiar. I'm probably already clear about what I'm going to go into before right, I even right. sit down. That would take me, if I'm really clear about it and I know what it is, I know the score well, it's probably like an hour and a half, two hours of song. Okay. Uh, and, and if it's really challenging, how long can it take you? If it's challenging or it's a bigger orchestration or I'm not as familiar, like I can do, I can knock out a big band chart in 
five or six hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all, like all, in, all in one sitting? All in one sitting. Yeah. And are you exhausted like, at the end of it? Usually. It seems like that kind of intense focus would just wear you out. Unless I'm super thrilled about it. Like, for example, this thing I was telling you about, this full orchestra Super Mario Brothers thing uh, with big band, like pop style. I had this idea, and I was just like, oh, shit, I got to do this right now. And I, like, woke up one morning and worked on it all day. didn't even think about eating. I was so excited about this idea. (laughs) I also, in this video... I transcribed where all the sound effects would be, and I put them on drum pads and we synced it up. I mean, it took, like, so long. But I was really thrilled about it, so I just, like, did it, you know? Right. Yeah. But that took a whole day. So just kind of generally, I want to talk about how this Be More Chill trip has been for you. Yeah. Um, from the early days to now we're about to go to Broadway. Right. Well, the really cool thing about the whole experience uh, process-wise and journey-wise to be more chill is it might it might be the one of the first, if not maybe the first show to sort of break the status quo of what the journey of a Broadway show has to be. Right. That if you open regionally and you get a bad review, that's it for you, you know? And right. there's a very few amount of gatekeepers that sort of decide based on their limited range of taste what gets to be a Broadway show or not. Yeah. And um, because of of uh, an incredibly devoted and uh, uh, excited fan base, that has been circumvented for the first time, I think, you know, in a long time. And so that isn't a really incredible thing. I mean, it really means that we already feel the support of people who want to see the show, whether from all know, over the country, from all over yeah, the world, the country and the world, really, whether or not uh, anybody writes whatever they write. I mean, if there's still people who are going to appreciate this from the get-go, which makes it a really fun and exciting thing to work on regardless of what happens, you know, which is really cool. And that could only be true in the digital age, right? Truly, yeah. It really is representative of possibly a, a change in the tide of how the media of Broadway is talked about and, and uh, experienced and, and been being given hype to and everything. It's very cool. Yeah, and and no one knows that better than our friend Jen Tepper, who's one of the producers <laughs> of Be More Chill. That's right, leading the pack. <laughs> well, I want I want to ask you one last question. Sure. I ask all the theater people I talk to. Mm-hmm. I honestly believe that we are in a new golden age of musical theater, and mm-hmm. I'd like to know if you agree. I think so. I think so. Again, like there's been a huge turning point in media in general, and and a focus back on I think singing and the arts and incorporating music into things. And, uh, and uh, similarly to what we're saying, like there's been a huge viral push towards more musical theater content in the mainstream of, of American culture, which has been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're right. I think we're ushering in a new wave of, uh, of uh, musical theater and the musicalization of media becoming back uh, into the spotlight. And, and I feel, you know, somebody out here in St. Louis who's producing a lot of the newer stuff after it's mm-hmm. been in New York I also feel there are so many shows now that are totally unique, that have their yeah. own set of rules, their own style and tone, everything. They're like nothing else. And there are a lot of them. And I think right. that means the art form is really healthy. Right. Because also the thing that people forget is that musical theater, by definition, is not a genre. It's a vehicle. It's a, it's right. a delivery. Right. right. Yes. You know? And so musical theater itself can't become passe because musical theater is not a genre. It's right. It's a vehicle. And so if we inject whatever is in the zeitgeist now into this delivery method, 
now it's relevant again. And I yeah. think that's what's happened. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for talking to me. I, we are all very psyched about Be More Chill. And, yeah, uh, cool. And I was just so psyched to talk to you because, like I said, I was listening to those videos on YouTube all the time, and I just think they're magnificent. So. Oh, thanks, man. Well, yeah, if you have yeah. a sec, like Google, even if you just Google like George Salazar Super Mario Bros, you should check yeah. out this video because absolutely, it's, it's pretty. I'm pretty proud of it. It was a pretty wild feat. That's magnificent. Well, enjoy the rest of the journey. Cool. And uh, we'll be watching. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you for joining us. This is Scott Miller. Now you, too, have achieved stage rock. See you next time. 